Hello, and welcome to the Expanding Eyes podcast. We have been examining one of Shakespeare's profoundest and I think best plays, Measure for Measure, even though it is not a play that was very popular in earlier times and has only come into its own recently. Yet I, I think personally it's one of Shakespeare's greatest plays the plot of the play is that the Duke of Vienna has pretended to go out of town on business, though that is really a ruse. He is really sneaking around in disguise as a friar, acting somewhat like Santa Claus, making a list and checking it twice, finding out who's naughty and nice. He has apparently deliberately set up a series of trials for the other characters. We're going to have to question eventually what in the world this man thinks he's really doing, but for right now that's the plot pretext. And he is put in charge, young untried Angelo, who immediately tries to enforce a law that has been on the books for an entire generation but never been hitherto enforced, and for good reason. It was a stupid law, and as everyone in the play really recognizes, except for Angelo, an unjust law. The romantic lead, Claudio, is now under sentence of death from this law because he got his fiancée, Julietta, pregnant before the engagement was official. They were secretly engaged in front of witnesses, but it isn't technically legal until it's publicly announced, and they did not do that. Therefore, Claudio is in prison and going to be executed for getting a woman that he had every intention of marrying pregnant before the wedding. Meanwhile, Angelo turns around, and at the end of Act Two tries to extort sex from Claudio's sister, Isabella, who is on the verge of becoming a nun. And in fact, you have to stage this in your mind with Isabella actually in a nun's habit during the scenes in which she is on stage, even though she has not yet taken final vows yet and therefore is not officially a nun. But there she is, wearing a nun's habit, being sexually harassed by this man who is going to kill her brother for getting his fiancée pregnant. And at the end of Act Two, we get Isabella's response in a brief soliloquy that ends, then Isabel lived chaste and brother died. Been nice knowing you, brother. That's her attitude. And we switch to Act Three, the Hinge Act, which is more of a hinge, as I often call it, than most third acts, even in Shakespeare. This one, there is indeed a dramatic turnaround. But in the first scene, things are going downhill fast.
The Duke appears, disguised as a friar in friar's robes, people in religious outfits that... That's not the whole story, shall we say, but here he is in friar's robes and pretending to be a friar, going into the prison and giving an enormous speech that puzzles us as to why are you saying this and why are you saying it at such enormous length since it's probably deducible even at this point that the duke has no intention of allowing Claudio really to die. He's clearly up to something even though at this point we have no idea what it is. But he gives this long and admittedly eloquent speech that begins, be absolute for death. Just don't even think of living. Get that hope out of your mind. And not only that, but that's what you should want. You should prefer death because you, if you seek to hold your life Remember that you are losing a thing that none but fools will keep. Life isn't worth it. And he goes into a speech that takes up an entire column of verse explaining why life is not worth living. Thou hast nor youth nor age, but as it were an after-dinner sleep dreaming on both. Forget it. And Claudio responds to this by saying, to sue to live, I find I seek to die, and seeking death, find life. Let it come on. He is, in other words, convinced that in seeking death, he finds life. That is the ending that he accepts and perhaps even chooses. How far does he really mean that? Oh, we find out quickly that drops away in an instant. But insofar as Claudio at the moment believes there is no hope, there is no way out, he is doing his absolute best to convince himself that since I have to die, that's really better anyway. And we find that very humanly understandable but he tries to assume the heroic stoic position of preferring death because death results in a heavenly reward and life here simply is not worth it and we talked about last time what is Shakespeare doing here because this is not going to be the way the plot goes. The plot is going to resolve, like all Shakespearean comedies, this is a problem comedy, but it's not so much of a problem that it obviates the eventual happy ending of life, marriage, and new life. Julieta is pregnant. There are going to be children. This, the resolution, not just of Shakespearean comedy, but of the structure of all traditional comedies is into life, not out of it. However, 
I suggested that this long speech is being put up as a signpost of an alternative option, even if the structure of comedy moves in the other direction. There is a type of comedy, a divine comedy, that does move in the otherworldly direction and the renunciation of any satisfaction in this world to the extent all the way in the New Testament itself, itself, Paul being asked whether Christians should marry, partly because the end of the world was expected soon, but partly a larger issue of whether something like marriage attaches you to a kind of happiness or hope of happiness in this world and whether you shouldn't be trying to detach yourself, at least mentally, from all such ties. There is a tension in the Christian tradition itself about this. And this speech is put up uh, as a signpost of one of the options elsewhere. And we shall see how that plays out. This play is about society, it is about human psychology, but it is indeed, like all of Shakespeare's comedies really, but much more overtly in Measure for Measure, beginning with the title itself, which is biblical, concerning itself with religious matters and bringing up eventually the question of Shakespeare's own religious convictions, which to foreshadow, we simply don't know for sure. There is no proof and much speculation about whatever religious commitment or ideology Shakespeare himself might have had. All we have is the evidence of the plays, and we have to see where that goes. In comes Isabella, still in Act 3, Scene 1, and Claudio greets his sister who informs him of Angelo's offer to her. Yes, brother, you may live. There is a devilish mercy in the judge. If you'll implore it, implore it, implore it that will free your life but fetter you to death. So he asks questions. Isabella seems to be as averse to coming to the point, as we saw that Angelo was previously, because coming out with things puts them on the table and exposes them to the cold light of day. So Claudio is put through a kind of guessing game, and he guesses, oh, you mean life in prison, perpetual durance? Oh, yeah, in a sense. And finally, she comes out with it, but not for a while. Yet. At first, Claudio tries to maintain his heroic, stoic attitude and bravely makes a speech about how, if I must die, I will encounter darkness as a bride and hug, hug it in my arms. Brave words, though we do note the little word if in front of it, He's not absolutely leaving out the prospect that, oh well, something may come up here. But if it doesn't, 
I will be heroic about this. And Isabella cheers this on. There spake my brother, there my father's grave did utter forth a voice. Yes, thou must die. <laughs> nice sister. She's just, okay, you know, this is a man who is in the condemned cell about to be executed. He really didn't perhaps need that right in his face, but whatever. But she finally comes out with the if clause. If I would yield him my virginity, thou must be freed. And that takes about half a minute to sink in, to sink into Claudio's mind, that is, not Isabella's. Isabella goes on to say, be ready, Claudio, for your death tomorrow, always comforting my sister. And Claudio's next remark, which is halfway to his sister, but perhaps, if it were being acted, perhaps in amusing, desperate tone, as if it were halfway to himself. Sure it is no sin, or of the deadly seven it is the least. What is the least of the seven deadly sins the sin of lust, the sin of carnality, of illicit sexuality. In other words, he's thinking about what Isabella might do to save his life. And Isabella is immediately suspicious. What says my brother? And he becomes more and more obvious about it. The shell cracks before our eyes, and the heroic, stoic martyr turns into a young man desperately afraid of death and wondering whether his sister might not save his life. He simply says, death is a fearful thing. And Isabella is still not hearing it, but a shameful life is hateful. And then it's Angel, or it's uh, Claudio's turn to launch into an enormous, long, and very vivid speech talking about death. And this is the speech. I, but to die and go we know not where, to lie in cold obstruction and to rot, this sensible warm motion to become a kneaded clod, and the delighted spirit to bathe in fiery floods or to reside in thrilling region of thick ribbed ice, to be imprisoned in the viewless winds and blown with restless violence round about the pendant world, or to be worse than worst of those that lawless and in certain thought imagine howling, it is tis too horrible, the weariest and most loathed worldly life that age, ache, penury, and imprisonment can lay on nature is a paradise to what we fear of death. Isabella says, alas, alas, but Claudio is not done yet. Sweet sister, let me live, 
What sin you do to save a brother's life, nature dispenses with the deed so far that it becomes a virtue. Please do this for me. It will not be a sin if you do it. It will actually be a virtue of saving my life. Isabella's response to that is, Oh, you beast! Oh, faithless coward! Oh, dishonest wretch! And goes on really hitting home. Is it not a kind of incest to take life from thine own sister's shame? What should I think? Heaven shield my mother played my father fair for such a warped slip of wilderness ne'er issued from his blood. Take my defiance, die, perish. Might but my bending down reprieve thee from thy fate it should proceed. I'll pray a thousand prayers for thy death. No word to save thee. And he begs, nay, hear me, Isabel. Oh, fie, 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 thy sin's not accidental, but a trade. And we know what trade that she is speaking of. The oldest trade, the oldest profession. You are, you would prostitute your own sister in a play of course with the imagery of whorehouses and prostitutes all the way through it you would pimp your own sister to save your life you are disgusting i have no use for you as we are bound to try to take a human look at claudio we also perhaps have to try to take a human look at Isabella and see, okay, she's just been asked to do something that would be horrible. To go to bed, to be extorted by Angelo, to give in to it. To go back, however, before we get to Isabella, to Claudio's speech, there are undeniable clues in it that Claudio, and therefore Claudio's author, has been reading a certain text about death and the afterworld. And that text, without a doubt, has to be Dante's Inferno. There is no other place where the imagery of what happens after death matches Claudio's description. Of the seven deadly sins, lust is the worst. And in Dante's Inferno, as we have seen in this podcast, the carnal, as they are called, are blown with restless violence round about the pendant world. They are in a gigantic whirlwind. And there is the ice here, the thrilling region of thick ribbed ice is the final circles at the bottom of Dante's hell and in no other place that I'm aware of is hell portrayed with ice and that is amazing of all the authors we do not expect Shakespeare to be looking into 
it would be Dante. And I think that it's particularly for the purposes of this play that he has not only been looking into the Inferno, but deliberately putting it here, again acting as signals to the audience about the thematic overtones of this play. Claudio is thinking this play is full of speeches that have to be read so psychologically. What's going on at this moment in this person's head? And of course, it is horror of death that is going on, but on two levels. He, he begins with the sheer horror of physical death and annihilation, just the horror of being in a body that is going to lie in cold, to rot, the sensible warm motion to become a kneaded clod, just physical death, horrible enough. But then it goes on in one of the many links to Hamlet a few years previously to imagery of what may happen after death as if turning into a corpse were not enough. It is the fear of what is after death, exactly as in Hamlet's soliloquy about suicide to be or not to be which says basically that Hamlet would commit suicide in a minute, except that the fear of something after death. And Hamlet leaves it open. Claudio fills it in with imagery of what may indeed happen from exactly Dante's Divine Comedy. And therefore he is hysterically begging his sister to do this for him. What does that say of Claudio? It says he's not a grand heroic martyr, that's for sure. And as I had said previously, I joke in class to the women in the class saying, no, I am not going to ask you whether you would do this to save your brother's life. But I think we should all put ourselves in the situation of thinking about much of this play turns on what, if you were tempted, we say things confidently about the right action to take when we're not actually being tempted, not actually being given the opportunity to take that course of action. But if you were put in Isabella's situation, what would you do or what should you do? Should Isabella go through with it as a charity to save her brother's life? But we have to, in fairness, turn to the other side also and ask here of Claudio, ask not just of Claudio, but ask of ourselves. The men, I would not ask the men in class, but I would ask all of us to think about, would you ask your sister to have sex with a twisted rapist so that you could live? Easy to say, oh, no, no, that wouldn't be nice. 
but if you really thought you were going to die the next day, would you? Or would you be the brave one, the noble one? That's what this play is really about, that human nature is so frail and imperfect, and we are faced with choices that are billed as black and white choices. Oh, of course you should do this. Life isn't like that. People aren't like that. That's what this play is really saying, and it is one reason I admit that I am very fond of this play. And if you want to be Christian about it, you could make a case. Who is the foremost of Jesus' disciples in the Gospels, Peter? Peter is portrayed in a way that is so repeated and obvious that it's clear that the Gospels are making a point of it. Peter is utterly fallible. He is a very frail reed. He is the one and no other who should, because he is the foremost of the disciples, should not have done this. He denies knowing Jesus three times. He betrays Jesus. No, not in the way of Judas Iscariot, but he chickens out. He is afraid, just as Claudio is afraid. So easy to be heroic in imagination, but when push comes to shove, as it does in real life, what would we really do? What should we even really do? And the imagery of the Divine Comedy, Dante, oh, the lustful are tormented. But if we think about this, Dante is also writing a comedy, and he is indeed writing one of those otherworldly comedies. It has a happy ending, but the happy ending is not in this world, not for Christians in general, but also not for Dante in particular. Dante's girlfriend is already dead. Beatrice has been dead for 10 years and is in heaven, and therefore the love of Beatrice does lead Dante, the character, out of this world. His happiness will eventually be to be united with Beatrice in heaven. And when he meets up with her in the Garden of Eden, at the end of the Purgatorio, Beatrice rips him up in and down for all the tendencies that he has shown after her death for lingering in this world. You should have arisen and followed me, not by suicide, by, but by orienting yourself out of this world. Instead of, she hints jealously, I say, Dante left behind some poems to an unknown woman that he had written after Beatrice's death. You should not have been trying to go on and have another relationship in this world. You should have been led by our eternal love out of it into eternity. And that is one direction. And it's a direction that Christianity at times endorses. But here, Claudio 
doesn't really believe in all that. He's terrified of death. He's terrified of damnation and punishment. He may not look like a heroic hero, but it's hard not to sympathize with some young fellow who's going to die for no reason and is desperately clinging to any type of hope that he can. It is also understandable that Isabel is repelled by it, but, but, the way she responds is not, shall we say, sympathetic. For one thing, she proves in an instant that she's not really a Christian, let alone a nun. No Christian would say, die, perish, if I just had to bend down to reprieve thee, it should proceed. I'll pray a thousand prayers for thy death. No Christian can say that as a Christian. And hell, Isabella is not even Christian, one thing. Isabella is not even being a very nice human being, let alone a nice sister at this moment. She could still turn down his offer and say, I'm sorry, my brother, that would be a wrong thing to do. And I understand your fear. I really do. But we can't do this. I'm sorry. That would be at least a modicum of compassion for your own brother about to die. Her absolute cold rage we need to psychoanalyze Isabel at this point. That act, that refusal is so extreme. It's not the refusal, but the cold fury of it that needs to be psychoanalyzed. And I mean the word literally. We need to look with a Freudian lens here for a moment or two and say, what's driving this extreme language of hers. And we look back at it. She says in passages that I just read, there my father's grave did utter forth a voice. In other words, Claudio at that moment when he's still being heroic is living up to the example of the father about which we know nothing except the language we get here from uh, Isabella. And then once again, in the passage, heaven shield my mother played my father fair. Such a warped slip of wilderness ne'er issued from his blood. Was my mother unfaithful to my father to produce you? Because this kind of sniveling coward would never have come of my father's blood. I say Freudian, whatever one thinks of Freud, because I think it's pretty obvious that what Freud would call a father complex is being rather loudly announced in these passages. She idealizes a father who never appears in the play. The father represents a perfection that Claudio the son utterly does not come up to. And that's the point, the perfection. 
what is the father to Isabella? The father is the one who is perfect. And to be sympathetic to Isabella, because that's the point of this play, self-righteousness gets us nowhere. To be sympathetic to Isabella, she's just had two men in a row let her down in a pretty horrifying way. She goes to Angelo, the representative of the law, and Angelo shows himself to be not only corrupt, but twistedly corrupt. And she is sexually harassed. Then she goes to her brother, and in his, her eyes at this moment, he's asking her basically yes to prostitute herself for his sake, do it for my sake. It is a self-centered act and a pretty huge one that he is asking her to do. He, too, is much less than perfect. The father is perfect. And of course, she's in a nun's habit. The ultimate perfect father is God. We have, therefore, the duty, the men of the world in Isabella's eyes have the duty to be godlike in their perfection, and she just met two men in a row who ain't very perfect. In Northrop Fry's teaching of Measure for Measure, and what he taught was recorded, uh, and turned into the book, Northrop Fry on Shakespeare. It's actually the content of his undergraduate lectures. He often asked his classes, what age, if you were casting, what age would you make Isabella or suggest? Or just, how do you think of her in terms of what age? The text says nothing about this, but Fry is trying to get at something. And Fry's own answer is that he thinks she is quite young. By Elizabethan Jacobean standards, a marriage age would have been late teens. And Fry is suggesting that Isabella may be quite young in the sense of a teenager that would be eligible for marriage and yet very young by our standards. Whether that's right or wrong doesn't matter. What he's suggesting is an attitude on Isabella's part. Why does Isabella really want to be in the convent? I mean, we had a red warning flag when we first met her, and she's saying to the nun in charge of the convent that she wishes to have more strict laws laid upon her than the convent even enforces. Already, it's a moment of being a bit extreme. Strict laws, what do strict laws do? They shield you. Why does she want to be in the convent? To be, to put it bluntly, safely shielded from life and from growing up. A moment of teenage development is a moment when, with at least some teenagers, it would be nice not to have to face all of this.
to grow up means to see and to accept that the law and men aren't perfect and maybe even God couldn't be questioned, not perfect, and that sex exists because we're talking bluntly about sex here. And sex means, it, when it's not extorted, sex means involvement and that means trust and you can't trust men. So it's terrifying. And basically, the law, the father, the convent exist because Isabella feels the need to be shielded from life. And as a matter of fact, this is not purely surmise that she makes a speech Oh, what a merit it were in death to take this poor maid from the world. What corruption in this life that it will let this man live. Better, why doesn't death take this poor maid from the world? Well, it's not going to stop there, but we have reached the moment of absolute bottom. Fry points out, something I would not have noticed, but a genius is a genius. Fry points out that right at that point, the midpoint of Act 3, Scene 1, in the Bevington text around line 155, suddenly the rhythm changes from verse into prose, and the Duke comes forward and produces out of his back pocket a new wrinkle in the form of another woman, Mariana, that we've never heard of before. And that's the twist. And we will continue from that crucial point next time. Mm -hmm.